actually, I told somebody once who asked me, said, uh, said, was I ever impressed by meeting? Um, I think he, the example he, he gave was Newt. By meeting someone like Newt Gingrich. And I said, look, when you meet Adam West in full Batman regalia and get to see the Batmobile, because it was at a car automobile show, Newt Gingrich, just he ain't going to measure up to that. An idea whose time has come cannot be stopped by any army or any government. The Other in One Pill Podcast starts now. Uh, welcome to the Honor and Ron Paul Podcast. Uh, this is episode 32, episode 32. And I'm joined today with Norm Singleton, who worked with Ron Paul extensively uh, when Ron Paul was uh, in Congress. And I'm just delighted to have him on today. Uh, we're recording this on uh, the same day that uh, Ron Paul went to the hospital for a presumed stroke or TIA. Um, and so as, as a physician, I should probably just uh, give a public announcement um, about strokes. This isn't medical advice. I'm not your doctor, but just in general, some of the things to look for. Uh, there's a little acronym called FAST, and it's, uh, let's see if I can remember it, uh, face, uh, facial troop, uh, arm, or arm or leg weakness, S is speech difficulty, and T is time. Time is of the essence, and fortunately, Ron Paul started having symptoms while he was doing a live stream. So there was no wasted time. He went immediately to the hospital and started getting treatment. Uh, as we get older, older people tend to have strokes that are blood clots. And you can treat blood clot strokes very quickly and effectively if you get there in time. I've had patients that have had very bad outcomes because they started feeling weird, started slurring their thing, their their speech, and said, "Oh, I'm, I'm maybe I'm just tired. I'm going to go to sleep." They go to sleep, they wake up, they still have the symptoms, and now it's too late to break up that clot. So fast, fast, fast. Um, anyway, with that little announcement, uh, we'll we'll get back into it. Unfortunately, he just sent a picture on uh, social media that suggests he's doing well. And I hope that that remains to be the case. All right. So back to Norman. Uh, let me just go ahead and ask you, if you could just give a, a little uh, brief overview of, of your involvement with uh, Ron Paul and what you're doing recently. I want to start by um, kind of a little bit following up on what you said. Um, as a physician, I think you'll agree with this. Two of the best pieces of advice Dr. Paul ever gave, well, one of the best pieces of advice Dr. Paul ever gave me, and then one of the best examples he set. The best advice was actually the first meeting I ever we ever had with him in the congressional office. He said, try to have fun, because working for liberty can be very frustrating work. We have authoritarians and statists of various stripes coming at us on all sides, uh, sometimes our supposed enemies on our supposed allies on one issue will turn out to be our worst enemies on the other 99 uh, liberty issues we're fighting. And it just can be very discouraging. So try to make it fun. And the second example is exercise every morning. And uh, I, I don't always follow 
those pieces of advice, but I think there's there's a good things to uh, keep in mind. And uh, I have, well, I've been a fan of Dr. Paul since 1987 or 1988 when I, uh, I guess, came across him in Reason Magazine or Liberty Magazine, uh, one of the libertarian publications that I was reading at the time, and I was just kind of getting used to, or uh, I had had the fortune of having an Austrian economist for an econ professor in uh, and mentor at uh, undergrad. So that's how I got into the Austrian school. He introduced me to Mises, Hayek, a little bit of Rothbard, uh, although he was from that school of the Miesian thought that kind of thought Murray might have been a little too out there. Um, and through that, I found I discovered Ron Paul. And um, I remember the moment that I decided that I was going to actually support him in 1988, being only the second member of my family to vote for someone other than a Repub the Republican candidate for president. When George Bush said, read my lips, no new taxes, I turned to my roommate and said, uh, I think he's lying. I'm going to vote for Ron Paul. <laughs> that <laughs> but, uh, very prescient. But, but uh, fast forward a couple years later, I'd gone to law school. I'd become involved in various political activities. I was always more interested in politics and policy than actually practicing law. And I found out that um, Dr. Paul was running again for, uh, in, for a congressional seat in Texas as a Republican. I called a friend of mine uh, who worked for Dr. Paul in the 70s named Lou Rockwell. Uh, some of you may have mm -hmm. heard of him. Um, and uh, Lou very nicely spoke to Ron. And I had another friend on the congressional staff who worked for Ron in the 88 campaign who also talked to Ron. Uh, I got to come down and do a little bit of research, uh, help uh, organize some of the opposition research, actually against Greg Laughlin, the Democrat turned Republican, who was running against Ron in the primary. And when Ron had to fight the entire Republican establishment, including the then Texas governor, George Bush, and Bush's political aide, Karl Rove. Mm. And uh, then I came back in the fall of 96, and I did basic campaign work, yard signs, sign waving, phone calls, and all that fun stuff. And after the victory, uh, Ron hired me on the congressional staff. At first, I was his aide for education and labor. I had previously worked for the National Right to Work Committee, so it was kind of a good fit for me to start off doing those issues. Ron was on that committee. Um, we uh, fought Clinton's uh, attempts to further nationalize education, and we fought the Republican establishment's attempts to pretend that they were uh, pro-education by abandoning the uh, Reagan position of the there should be no Department of Education and trying to offer Me Too but less to Clinton's proposals. Then in 2001, our uh, legislative director left, Ron um, gave me the job, of LD and I held that to 2012. Uh, and actually the first, my first official week as legislative director, the house was shut down because there was anthrax delivered to some house office buildings. And this coming less than a month after the September 11th attacks, uh, everyone's nerves were already on edge. And so that was my auspicious beginning wow. to, my, uh, new, to my new title. Uh, I was also involved in 2008 and 2012. I did some policy work 
for the presidential campaigns. Um, and I was fortunate enough to be able to attend the rally for the Republic, which is still one of the fondest memories of my life and the 2012 Republican convention and the wonderful event that Ron held uh, before that, uh, before the Republican convention in 2012. In 2013, I started working at Campaign for Liberty. In 2015, I became president of Campaign for Liberty. I uh, hold that position uh, till this day. Um, very, very excited to work um, mobilizing grassroots and trying to uh, keep them up to date on what's going on in DC uh, through um, our blog at campaignforliberty.org, uh, through our email program, which helps mobilize um, our members to put the heat on members of Congress. Um, some exciting things happened in the liberty movement uh, in that period of time that C. Farrell was involved in. Um, probably the most I don't want to say significant, but probably the most, uh, maybe one of the most noteworthy was when we stood with Rand in 2015 when he filibustered three of the worst expiring provisions of the Patriot Act and actually managed to get them temporarily sunsetted. Even though they were renewed, Rand's efforts, along with the efforts of Campaign for Liberty's membership, managed to shift the debate. Absolutely. To, from, do we renew it's straight or do we have some phony reforms to, to do we have some reforms or do we just scrap the whole thing um we also were very involved in a fight uh to stop um outlawing internet gambling which um was really a an interesting battle because on the other side of us in the republican party the leaders were in the senate lindsey graham and marco rubio now you may be wondering why are Graham and Rubio taking up this cause of all the evil causes that these two could take up? Well, as I'm sure all of your listeners know, Graham and Rubio are two of the biggest promoters of a interventionist neocon foreign policy in the Senate. Um, probably second only to maybe Senator Tom Cotton and certainly the late Senator John McCain. The leading backer of the ban for on uh, internet gambling is a gentleman named Sheldon Adelson, who is one of the few casino owners who actually opposes um, in online gambling. So he wants to use his clout to make his, with Congress as a big neocon donor, he wants his neocon buddies like Graham and Rubio to get, uh, impose his business model on the rest of this industry and on the rest of his consumers. This is a horrible example of crony capitalism. I can't imagine that anybody who is a fan of a, of a podcast called Honoring Ron Paul is going to be a big admirer of Sheldon Adelson, <laughs> but just in case anybody out there needs another reason to not like Sheldon Adelson and think that he's a very pernicious influence on the Republican Party and the American political system, here, here's one more for you. It's a it's always interesting. You kind of know who who really is in the establishment uh, because they're they're not mentioned nearly as much. I mean, people are always talking about the Koch brothers, um, but I, I would imagine that Sheldon Adelson has has much more influence uh, in the the normal day to day uh, greasing of the wheels than the Koch brothers. Uh, 
would you uh, agree with that? Or you were kind of down there in, in the muck of it. Well, I, I would say that, um, that, that the point of view that he puts forth pro war, pro authority, pro moral authoritarian, nominally free market, but not really, um, is much more accepted right. by members of the establishment than even um, what some of my friends um, might consider to be kind of a watered-down libertarianism promoted by the, the Koch brothers. And um, it's one thing that um, one, of the, one of the reasons I, I like working at Campaign for Liberty and one of the reasons I think it's very important, especially in terms of a Ron Paul organization, is that um, it follows in many ways on an insight that Murray Rothbard had, which is that in society you have the elites, the political elites, the financial elites, the media elites, and then you have the masses. The masses aren't really interested in politics. They're not really interested in political power or bossing other people around. Most people are inherently libertarian. They just want to live their lives and be left alone by the government. Now, unfortunately, today, because of the influence of state of government run education and 24 seven state influence or pro state propaganda from the mainstream or lamestream media, a lot of people think that in order to live their lives in peace and with peace, prosperity, they do have to sacrifice their liberty. But um, that is simply a matter, but, but to dissuade them of that, that is simply a matter of showing them the truth, educating them, and also um, letting, you know, w- w- letting them themselves see the, the constant results of the Federal Reserve and the welfare state and how it destroys, destroys families, destroys opportunity, how the Federal Reserve destroys their, their, the value of their dollars. There's their, their young men and women coming home from pointless wars, um, you know, 19-year-olds being sent to Afghanistan almost 20 years after, after 9-11 and the, the launching of that war, uh, and what, eight years after the, the death of Osama bin Laden. Uh, wow. But the elite, it's been they eight profit years? off of this. Man. Eight years. It was eight or actually it might be nine years. It might have been 2011. But the elites profit off of that system. So who is more going to be receptive to a message of liberty? And I think Dr. Paul's 08 and 2012 campaigns showed that, you know, the party elites aren't going to be accept, aren't, aren't going to accept a hardcore libertarian me- message for a variety of reasons. But there is a constituency for that. It's a grassroots. It's populist. and the way to really put that constituency into influence is have them mobilize to not just put good people in office, but to watch what the bad people do and also, and, and let them know we're watching you and we don't like how you're voting. And if you keep it up, there's going to be a consequence and the consequence is going to be pain on election day. Politicians don't like to be threatened with pain by their constituents. They don't like the idea that there's all these crazy Ron Paul people all of a sudden calling their offices and saying, pass the audit, the Fed bill, don't vote for the Patriot Act. What, what, what are you doing voting for this Obamacare thing, uh, even thinking about it? 
I know that because I because in '09 uh, onward, I would hear that from my fellow staffers who, before that, kind of treated Dr. Paul and the rest of our office as kind of uh, a very principled and well-respected, but kind of isolated force that had no real influence in D.C. But after 08, all that changed, and they had to take Ron seriously because they had to take his people seriously, and they did not like it. Politicians do not like, if, if you think that there's nothing else to be gained by calling a politician's office and chewing out his staffers because they're voting for liberty, think about this. this. You are actually making someone who spends their days trying to take away your freedom and put your children into more and more, and grandchildren into more and more debt, you're making their day a little bit more miserable. <laughs> and uh, that, that I think, is ought to put a smile on any liber- liberty lover's face. But that's the, 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 uh, the essence of, of it is um, that what we want to do is try to get our movement to the point where, as Milton Friedman said, it doesn't matter if we have elected enough good guys to office to compose an overwhelming majority of the legislature, because we'll probably never to be, we'll probably never accomplish that. But what, so what matters is when we get to the point where we're influential enough that the bad guys feel that they have to vote with us. Mm. Otherwise, they'll lose their seats. Yeah, that's good. And that puts it in a a much more obtainable kind of light. Tell me a little bit about the formation of Campaign for Liberty. Because uh, uh, in 07 and 08, I was not directly involved with the campaign. I was one of these that was just making signs and hanging them up and, you know, just randomly going to marches here and there, you know, standing out in front of the Fed. Uh, none of it was coordinated by the campaign at all. <laughs> um, and then, uh, so it was off of that that he then started Campaign for Liberty. Is that correct? Right, right, right. Um, there, was a, there was always a thought as the campaign started to take off and attract these new people that there had to be some sort of organizational infrastructure built to kind of... Um, keep this momentum going and make it into a permanent force in American politics. And um, there was, and at the time, I mean, I, I honestly thought, and I think a lot of, and I think maybe Dr. Paul himself thought that the 08 campaign was great, but it was probably his last shot at running for president mm-hmm. um, that he wasn't interested in 2012. Um, obviously he changed his mind um, between then and now, but there was, but there, and there's a lot of groups, great groups out there that are doing educational work. Um, certainly um, the Mises Institute. And then um, recently um, we have run by my friend, Daniel McAdams, the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity, which does, I think, heroic educational work by uh, countering the propaganda of the war party uh, and the regime changers. Um, but Campaign for Liberty was created to fill a niche of activism and education. And um, it was designed to, for, to have, give people who already know the truth, understand the philosophy, a vehicle to permanently affect their politicians and their elected officials. Uh, the decision was made um, 
early on that audit the Fed would be a key issue. And that uh, Campaign for Liberty made that into a major issue. And uh, it managed to um, almost pass in a Democratic House with a, in a Democratic Senate and a Democratic president as part of the Dodd-Frank bill. Um, there was a watered-down version passed, but on, uh, and the reason it was watered-down was unfortunately our Senate champion, Bernie Sanders, caved into pressure from Chris Dodd. Um, and unfortunately, that's not the only example of Bernie not being the progressive version of Ron Paul that some people think he is. Actually, Dennis Kucinich is probably a lot closer to being a progressive version of Ron Paul. Yes, I love Dennis Kucinich. In terms of, in terms of principles. As far as, uh, and, as, uh, as, far as uh, Democrats go, I still remember, I, I don't know if you remember the 07, there was this uh, rap song that somebody made, uh, Ron Paul for the long haul, and they had this little line. Uh, talking about who you're going to vote for. And it's like, Dennis Kucinich with zero percentage. And I was like, oh, poor Dennis. Because he was running on the other side and also having a much more principled kind of stance. And he also was shunned by the Democratic establishment. You 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 notice that, that the, the two parties really don't like candidates who uh, oppose war. Right. And who are outside of the uh, of the mainstream? I mean, you look at how they treated Ron. You look at how they treated Tulsi Gabbard, and you think that in both cases, these are two candidates who, if you just look at their resumes um, and voting records, you would think, well, this is these guys. These are natural fits because they have a lot of cross part. They have a lot of natural appeal, um, and they have great appeal to the party's base, but. They're very outspoken on war, and um, you got to keep that uh, military-industrial complex happy. Um, just like uh, with the Fed, you know, you got to keep the big banks happy. And I mean, that that was actually um, pure stroke of luck because um, you know Ron formed Campaign for Liberty, and uh, was was kind of uh, in formation in the summer of '08, and then they had their big kickoff event in Minnesota. Uh, at the same time as the Republican convention, because the delegates were, Ron, people were completely shut out of the RNC in uh, 08. Uh, a lot of dirty tricks. 20, yeah. As opposed to 2012, where they had to let them in, they just, uh, once they were in, then they just uh, did everything they could to, to neutralize the threat. But uh, I think we thought that there would be a relatively quiet fall as campaign for liberty got campaign for liberty got itself up and running and ready for the results of, for to really like launch a lot of cool stuff in uh 09 and i think at that time although it was a little uh unsure most people thought that it was going to be a 08 was going to be a good year for the democrats and obama would win and so there'd be a lot of challenges to liberty for groups like C4L to uh, take up. But then the, the market crashed and the bailouts happened. All of a sudden, Campaign for Liberty had to weigh in on a major issue. And they mobilized people against the bailouts. If you remember, we actually won the first vote on that. Yes. And then the market panicked, the elites panicked, the administration panicked. Bernanke and Paulson were you know, furiously working the phones. And uh, we ended up uh, we ended up losing that, unfortunately. But I think it was an initial show of strength of the liberty movement, 
And it was also, people forget this, but this was also the real birth of the Tea Party movement. It, right. it wasn't born under because of Obamacare or because of cap and trade. It was born because of Bush's bailouts. And then the, the Tea Party movement, unlike the Ron Paul-inspired liberty movement, the Tea Party movement allowed itself to be co-opted by um, Republican by the Republican establishment, and uh, it also, I think, allowed itself to be a lot of its members to be discouraged by a variety of things, including the Supreme Court's Obamacare decision. But I think uh, those of us who are steeped in the libertarian philosophy, um, who've read Mises and Hayek, and who follow the example of Ron Paul. Um, we understand that it's a long battle, and it's a battle fought on many, many, many fronts, education, activism, journalism, and that we really can't expect a quick fix. Uh, we didn't get in this mess overnight, and we won't get out of it overnight. Yeah, and speaking of education, I went to some of the, uh, I'm pretty sure it was Campaign for Liberty, you had some uh, educational seminars in 09 or 10, um, it was kind of like a little traveling show. There was one in Iowa that had uh, Tom Woods and Judge Andrew Napolitano and a couple other people uh, that I went to. And that's how I was introduced to a lot of the intellectuals that I would then read and really build my knowledge base. And so that, that did work. And now I'm... <laughs> just keep reading. And <laughs> so uh, as far as the, and you watch the Liberty report every day, of course, of course, it's nice, short, 10, 15 minutes, get all the information you need to get, uh, get your head straight for the day. So if, if uh, you could just tell me a little bit about uh, where campaign for Liberty is uh, planning on going and how people can get involved and, and support you. Well, we are uh, working on a number of issues right now. Um, with this coronavirus, uh, I don't know what the hysteria, the, there's been a horrible assault on our liberties, as we all know. And it's really taking a toll, especially on children um, and who have to sit at home in front of a of a screen and try to learn then and this distance learning it's 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 not it's not something that's that's going to work and so but they're going to ramp it up and i think if you there's been talk in my state of virginia where i live the commissioner of health said that he had the authority to make covid vaccines mandatory and then a week after that the virginia legislature rejected a motion to allow people to take a religious exemption from the COVID vaccine. I've seen some articles saying that COVID vaccine needs to be mandatory. I've seen um, Bill Gates and Dr. Fauci have proposed things like a, a digital certificate that will let um, authorities know that you have been certified as being clean of COVID. And there's you know only one or two ways you can do that. One is have the virus and then let your body develop natural immunities to COVID. Um, and the second way is to get the vaccine. And if you look at Dr. Fauci's exchange with Rand, Senator Paul this week, excuse me, um, 
you'll note you'll notice that he was very he got very hostile when Rand was attempting to make the case that uh, herd immunity is going to be the the solution to to this. And uh, in fact, as uh, Daniel McAdams uh, once said on an a recent edition of Liberty Report, he, herd immunity is is gone from a scientific fact to a conspiracy theory. And one of the reasons might just be that um, for whatever reason they want to push this vaccine. They're, they're committed to a model of, that says that the government funds and develops a vaccine and that's how we deal with pandemics and don't bother us with counter narratives or counter facts. That long introduction was to get to what I fear is going to happen and why I think it's important that Campaign for Liberty weigh in on this um, is that it's the mandates will not be we're going to send the police to your door to uh, drag you out and, and put a needle in you and your family's arms if you don't voluntarily go to your doctor's office and get your shot. What it's going to be is they're going to say, okay, we have this thing called the real ID. We have contact tracing and uh, tracking. We have ways of knowing if you have got your, we also have electronic medical records thanks to Obamacare. And we're, reviving the idea of a universal patient identifier, a medical ID that will make it easy to store and track your medical records. Put all that together, it means that the government will be able to know when, if you have your vaccine. And if you don't, they'll be able to use systems like the Real ID system, which is now mandatory in all 50 states after years of being delayed to limit your ability to travel, to board an airplane, to get a job uh, in certain professions, um, maybe even to open a bank account or do other financial transactions as a, quote, incentive, unquote, to get the vaccine. And so we're fighting that. And I think philosophically, uh, I think as Dr. Paul has pointed out, um, this is something that even if you're not what they call an anti-vaxxer, you should be on our side of this issue because think about this. If the government can tell you, you can't make your own decisions on healthcare, on whether or not to have something that you have researched yourself and you think could have potential risk to yourself and your children that outweigh the potential benefits, we don't care. We're overriding that because we're the government and we've decided it's for the common good that you sacrifice your individual liberty. Then what of our liberties can the government not take away from us? Something so fundamental as how you care for your health. Um, if they can do that, then why can't they tax us at, uh, 30, 40, or upwards of 50% of our income? Why can't the Federal Reserve um, regularly downgrade our purchasing power of the dollar in order to, to help uh, facilitate a deficit-driven welfare warfare state? Why can't they draft young men and women to go overseas and fight in absurd regime change wars? Why can't they take our guns? Why can't they limit our freedom of speech? Uh, why can't they force our children out of homeschools and into um, government schools where they can learn about how evil white men are instead of learning real history and uh, real science and real math. 
Yeah, it uh, certainly is concerning. And you see how all of these kind of stepwise policies and precedents have developed over the years, uh, culminating in, um, if not, uh, it, may, it may not come to pass that all of these things uh, happen, but it's certainly within the power to combine uh, the real ID uh, with uh, the Medicare changes that require, and I'm a little bit more privy to this as a physician, but uh, with the changes in Obamacare, it's the electronic health records. You have to be able to link those health, health records with Medicare. And uh, that was uh, one of these requirements when everyone was forced to go to electronic health records if you were to accept Medicare. So uh, this is all very accurate, the potential abilities uh, that the government uh, could impose. And it's, it's interesting and, and concerning that uh, they're using this COVID virus uh, for this. Um, and you always think that you know, people would really be reaching out for safety to the government when there's um, significant risks. And then there's always that flight for safety and you're giving up your freedoms. But this uh, coronavirus, relative to its predictions by Neil Ferguson and uh, other people before this came on, talking about, you know, one to 5% mortality rate uh, of the population, you know, one and a half million people dying in the US. It is uh, so far away from those being accurate. Now, obviously, if you're in one of these uh, groups that are at high risk, it can be very dangerous for you. But if you're in one of these extremely low risk categories, uh, young, healthy people under the age of uh, 45, 50. Uh, I don't remember specifically what the cutoff is as, as far as being extremely low risk, where basically, you know, uh, risk of dying from this is about the same as driving a car, about the same as accidental poisoning. You know, they've, they've correlated it with a lot of things. Uh, so you're gonna, going to then force a vaccine with very minimal testing on this population that's already extremely low risk from the COVID. And that's very concerning because, you know, what's going to be the risk from the vaccine itself? Every vaccine has uh, potential risks, um, overstimulation of the immune system, leading to conditions like Guillain-Barre, where your body accidentally attacks the nerves. So there's a, a lot of potential risks with vaccines. Uh, I mean, a lot as in a variety. And those risks are, for most vaccines, extremely rare and small, but they're not zero. And uh, I've seen very little evidence that any vaccine that's coming out uh, is going to have a lower risk for that population than just getting the virus itself. And it's, it's, it's very concerning that they're using this as a power grab. Uh, of course, they always use these uh, big, scary boogeymen. I mean, the statistics of 
likelihood of dying from a terrorist attack were extremely low. And, you know, they put everybody at risk in the TSA and all these things, a power grab. And now you know, the TSA, you know, you can you know, completely limit somebody uh, from traveling because the government now controls who can get on a plane or not. So it's certainly concerning. That's actually one of Campaign for Liberty's initial run-ins um, was one of our then staffers was coming back from one of the conferences. Yes, you, I remember and, this very well. Yeah, he was carrying a bunch of cash. And of course, if you carry too much cash, you're automatically a suspect criminal. Um, what a lot of people don't know is that if you if you deposit just enough cash under to avoid being subject to your bank filing what's called a suspicious activity report on you, then you can be investigated and charged with structuring, which is trying to make deposits of cash that are just under the rate, just under the, the limit where you become subject to the reports. Um, but yeah, we, yeah, the, the the war on cash is uh, something uh, that's just uh, another another issue we have, um, and that's something else. Another fight that Campaign for Liberty is fighting is, uh, you know, Bitcoin is great, crypto is great. Uh, I I I think it's great that people are out there creating their own money and adopting it, uh, but there's this proposal for a digital dollar, which would be the Fed would actually create in some uh, in in some versions of it, the Fed would actually create a bank account for every American and the Fed would then push a button at the beginning of each month and you would get a thousand dollars into it. And a lot of people who don't understand Austrian economics and don't understand inflation uh, and how insidious it is think that's a great idea. I actually had a, it was actually proposed as part of the first uh, COVID relief bill. And I had a, a friend who was bought into the entire COVID hysteria um, when I was talking about the economic devastation being caused by the lockdowns and the businesses that were closing, he said they shouldn't worry about it. Uh, if the government would just send us all $2,000 a month, people could just sit at home uh, and spend their $2,000 a month getting DoorDash and Uber Eats and groceries delivered and, uh, until this thing passes. This is another area where we're fighting, um, you know, given that we were you know, founded by the greatest historical opponent of central banking um, and in American history, um, I, I believe um, that that's how Dr. That's one of the legacies of Dr. Paul uh, in making the Federal Reserve and audit the Fed and even ending the Fed a mainstream issue in American public life again. Uh, that is something that we're going to fight. And, and the digital dollar, again, it's become tied to the Andrew Yang idea of a universal basic income, which means that if Biden wins next wins in November and the Democrats take the House and the Senate, I think there'll be a serious push for something, something like this. And on COVID, um, your comments before were, were reminded me of something I thought of about the beginning of the program when you said that uh, when somebody, when you someone shows the fast, it's it's the last le the last letter in their T is time because if someone is having a stroke, it's timely. You need to get them to the emergency room in a timely manner. Well, we've seen people having strokes, heart attacks, 
um, and and people who have cancer foregoing their their chemo treatments, um, thinking that you know it's just a, a I'm just having senior moments um, and, and brain fog. It'll clear up on its own. Um, or I'm just having chest pains because they've been terrified of the COVID propaganda that they think, oh my God, I, I can't go to the emergency room. I'm going to die, die of COVID. So they're going to sit home and have strokes and heart attacks and maybe die at the very least, suffer unneedlessly because had they gone to the emergency room, the doctors could have treated it, but because they waited, because they were so scared of COVID, now they they have deliberating conditions that are that have become untreatable or treatable at very lengthy, expensive, and difficult right. treatments. And this is a cost that has to be weighed into it. As um, I think I first read this um, in Thomas from Thomas Sowell, but it's something that. Policymakers, especially on the left, forget is that there's trade-offs to everything. No, there's not nothing on this earth is a hundred percent good. There are trade-offs to everything, and there are trade-offs to safety measures taken to prevent a virus like COVID. And one of the things you have to do is weigh the risk, not just say that. Uh, um, you know, if, if shutting down the economy will save one life, then it's worth it. Well, as, um, a lot of, uh, libertarian economists, leading economists have pointed out, um, if that's true, then why aren't we all, then why isn't the speed limit five miles an hour? Because if the speed limit was five miles an hour, think of all the lives we'd save, right? Exactly. Yeah. And I, I, and I did several episodes, episode 18, 19, 20, around there, um, we're on COVID and talking specifically about the measurement of life years lost uh, versus just specifically lives lost. Because once you uh, interrupt an economy, um, you have devastating consequences to those in uh, the third world. Um, we had... Um, uh, Mr. Glyer from Donor C on talking about his work in the third world and how um, not necessarily COVID, but the COVID lockdowns and restrictions are causing a massive amount of, of starvation. Uh, and it's, it's very sad because it's the amount of life years loss is going to be uh, from the restrictions is going to dwarf the life years lost to the virus itself. And, um, you know, this goes all the way back to Bastiat, seen versus unseen. And it's just, um, it's sad that we've kind of allowed ourselves to be, um, we've, as a society, uh, delegated so much of our safety over to the government so that we don't even feel any kind of responsibility for, for evaluating uh, what we do for our own safety. Everything has to be laws and rules. And, uh, you know, there were so many policies that came in at the beginning of COVID that were likely quite effective. And all of those policies that were effective were by uh, individual private companies, you know, shutting down large venue of uh, events, 
And, you know, doing that on their own uh, without the big hand of government, once again, the government was uh, too late. And all they did is put up roadblocks, um, blocking the uh, effective testing, uh, blocking who can make masks, blocking who can make uh, alcohol-derived hand sanitizers, and, and yet a huge swath of the population still is begging the government to do more interventions. Sad. And, and don't forget either, um, I actually have a piece up today on Campaign for Liberty's blog site. Um, I'll, I'll link it in the uh, description. Called um, There Is No Small Government Party in Washington, D.C., I think that's one of the things that the crisis has highlighted is that, you know, the alleged fiscal conservative Republican Party is saying to Nancy Pelosi, you're insane. You want to spend three trillion dollars. We've already spent upward, um, at least five trillion, maybe six trillion uh, on COVID relief bills. So we're going to be fiscally responsible. We're going to spend we're only going to spend uh one trillion or one point five trillion or maybe even below one trillion and just eight hundred billion. And that that's what that's what passes for fiscal conservatism in D.C. right now, uh, with few exceptions, notably Thomas Massey and uh, Rand Paul. Nobody in D.C. is really seems to be talking, even talking about the need to stop spending money. Uh, Manchin, Treasury Secretary Manchin and Federal Chairman Jerome Powell have even publicly stated Congress should not worry about the debt and deficit right now. Powell said, don't worry, I'll print as much money as you need. Just go ahead and spend whatever you feel is necessary during this crisis. He also, by the way, has uh, said that um, he wants the to start applying the full employment mandate in a way to make it broad-based broad employment, which means that he is going to be using social justice now and the goal of eliminating racial disparities as his latest excuse for keeping the print and printing presses going. And that's why it's important that we have groups like Campaign for Liberty to mobilize and activate, that we have groups like the Mises Institute and RPI to educate and tell people the truth. And that's why it's important that we have people like you out there speaking this, speaking this truth to people. Um, because we're it, ultimately. The liberty movement, the ones, those of us who get the truth, I mean, we're it in terms of not just fighting this, but offering a real viable alternative. The two, the two parties, they don't have an alternative. Um, the difference between both parties support the welfare warfare state. The only difference they argue about is the details as to how much should be spent on what forms of welfare versus how much should be spent on what forms of, of warfare. And that is an excellent point. And uh, I think that's a, a great way to close off episode 32 on uh, com slash EP32. And there you'll find links to uh, Norman Singleton's works uh, and articles at Campaign for Liberty. And there's also a button in the upper right-hand corner that says donate. So if you'd like to continue this work, I strongly encourage you to donate. And Norman, it has been a delight to chat with you. And I wish you the best and keep up the hard work. Thank you. You too.